What does it take to accomplish the mission? That depends on what the mission is. Back in October of 2006, I took a group of friends on a camping trip up in the Sierra Nevada mountains of Eastern California. I say I took because I was the ringleader of this operation. We drove up from Los Angeles, we set up camp, we spent a night in a campsite. The next morning, we set out for a day hike. Now this day hike was going to be seven miles up, seven miles back, starting at a 7,000 foot elevation and going to the top of Alta Peak, which was elevation 11,000 feet. So we planned to gain 4,000 feet of elevation over seven miles and then lose it again on the way down. As we were beginning this rather long and difficult day hike, I began to feel the number of questions from my friends. What's the point of this? Why are we doing this? This is your idea of fun? What kind of a sick person are you? And by the time we got up above the tree line, a couple of things started happening. One is that the views were stunning. This is in the, East, this is in the Sierra Nevada mountains. You could see dozens of miles, these huge peaks in the distance, breathtaking views. But also as the altitude is climbing higher and higher, the air gets thinner and thinner. It's harder and harder to breathe. So by the time we started getting up to the summit ascent, it's basically a straight walk up a bare granite dome where every breath is hard and every step is hard. We finally made it up. We got to the peak. The views are incredible. You're looking down into this tiny little lake like thousands of feet below in this canyon. But we only had a few minutes up there before the weather changed. I should have mentioned that it was sunny, it was clear, we were wearing shorts and t-shirts, but up on top of the mountain, it started to snow. We weren't exactly outfitted for snow, and a bare granite dome is not exactly the safest place to be when it starts to snow, so we started getting down off the mountain, we start walking down. Thankfully, gravity's on our side the whole time, because we're just walking down, 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 but of course, once we got below a certain elevation, it got a little warmer. And then the snow turned into rain, and it just rained on us the whole way down. Our, our clothes were completely soaked through. When we finally got back to the camp after a rather long day, our camp gear was all soaked through. We had no choice but to pack up, put all of our stuff into my van, completely soaking wet, drive off the mountain, and drive all the way back to L.A. that evening. It took like four more hours of driving. Let's do a little audit of that mission and its success. Willpower, pretty strong. Attitude, mixed. Gear, very poor. Planning, almost none. Leadership, questionable. Does your life have a mission? If so, how equipped are you for that mission? If you're not a believer in Jesus, we're glad you're here. You're welcome at any of the services of New Covenant Baptist Church. I'd encourage you to talk to Jeremy and one of the pastors here or any of the members here about what it means to follow Jesus. My question for you that might help give you a way into this sermon and a way into this text would be, what would you say is your main purpose in life? If you're not a believer in Jesus, what will it take for you to achieve that purpose? And what will happen if you do? 
This afternoon, as Jeremy's mentioned, uh, we're going to dive right into the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians with chapter 2, verses 19 to 30. I think in the blue Bibles around you, it should be on page 981, if that's the same as mine. Hope it is. The whole letter to the Philippians is something of a dispatch from Paul on mission. So the Apostle Paul is in prison, but the mission of the gospel is still advancing. The Philippians were partners with Paul in this mission. They supported him financially and in many other ways, and in some ways, the whole letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter from Paul to the Philippians, thanking them for his support of his ministry even while he's in prison. Our passage, right in the middle, chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, is sort of a newsy update about who is going where and when and why. But these verses offer us far more than a kind of logistical briefing. These verses remind us as believers in Jesus what our fundamental mission is, and they show us what we need to be in order to accomplish that mission. So if you were here at the seminar yesterday, you might find some particular links here where we're thinking about the kind of character that God intends to form, us in, form in us in conformity to Christ in order to faithfully and effectively minister to others. So we're going to spend a few minutes considering the passage as a whole, kind of getting a handle on the big picture before I then walk us through it step by step. So if you're looking at the passage, you'll see there's two main paragraphs. That's because there are two main news updates in this passage, one in each paragraph. In the first paragraph, Paul says he hopes to send Timothy soon. In the second paragraph, as we'll see, Paul says he has sent Epaphroditus now. Since the second paragraph comes first in time, we'll start there. So this begins with Epaphroditus. You'll see him mentioned in verse 26. Epaphroditus is a Gentile believer from Philippi, the place that Paul is writing to. Verse 25 tells us that the Philippians appointed Epaphroditus to be their messenger to Paul. They're several hundred miles away from him, and if they wanted to communicate with him or support him, which they did, they needed somebody to deliver that, which is what Epaphroditus was. So Epaphroditus is the person who physically delivered their financial support to Paul. In the ancient Mediterranean world, you could not just Venmo somebody. If you wanted to transfer material resources to somebody across a distance, you needed someone who was trustworthy, you needed someone who could handle a difficult and dangerous journey, you needed to be able to physically give them what they were going to bring to somebody, and they had to go by road, by sea, encountering all kinds of weather, difficulty, danger. It was probably at least an 800-mile trip under those kind of conditions to get from Philippi to Rome. That's what Epaphroditus did. But likely on his trip from Philippi to Rome, Epaphroditus got seriously sick, and yet he persevered in his mission. He delivered the Philippian support to Paul. So at the time of writing, Epaphroditus is there with Paul in Rome. But by the time of reading, that is when the Philippians would have gotten this letter and read it out in their corporate gathering, just like we're going to do throughout the sermon. By the time of reading, when the Philippians first read this letter from Paul out loud in their assembly, Epaphroditus was back with them. Paul sent Epaphroditus back because, since he had fallen ill, the Philippians became concerned for him, and Epaphroditus became concerned for them, so Paul thought it was best for them to be reunited. 
Look down at the passage in verse 28. We could translate the Greek of the passage more literally. Paul says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. We could translate this more literally as Paul saying, I have sent him the more eagerly. The verb Paul uses is a simple past tense. He's telling the Philippians he has sent Epaphroditus. Why is he saying he has sent Epaphroditus? That's because when Paul was writing, Epaphroditus was with him. But then Epaphroditus is the one who brought the letter back to the Philippians so that by the time they're reading it, Epaphroditus is back with them, and they may be wondering, what's going on? Hey, Epaphroditus, didn't we send you to Paul to take care of Paul? Why are you back here? So Paul's explaining why Epaphroditus is back with them. It wasn't any failure on Epaphroditus' part, but Paul's loving response to God's mysterious providence. Then we look up at the first half of the passage, the first paragraph. Paul says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. So Paul's in prison. He's awaiting the outcome of his trial. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him yet, but he hopes to send Timothy. And his only purpose in sending Timothy is to learn how the Philippians are doing. He wants to get a kind of spiritual update on how the church is going from Timothy. But he's just keeping Timothy with him a little bit longer because he just doesn't know what's going to happen. So Timothy's kind of there assisting him. He's already giving up Epaphroditus to get back to the Philippians. But now Timothy, hopefully, he'll be sending soon just so he can learn how they are. Those are the two kind of news updates in our passage. That helps us just get a framework for it. I'm now going to read the whole passage, and then we'll discuss the whole thing a little bit more together. So, Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here's one of the main questions we need to ask and answer in order to understand this passage. We've seen the two main movements, two main news updates. But the question is, why does Paul give us this news update right in the middle of the letter? 
He'll often do this in kind of greeting sections at the end of the letter, kind of updates about who's going where. Why does he do it here, right in the middle? It's like, it's like a news report dropped into the middle of some other broadcast program, right? Like, th- is this an interruption? Is this a digression? What's happening here? I think the key is that if you look at the two sections that come before this, if you, if you just scan over verses 6 to 11, it's the glorious statement of how Christ humbled Himself by becoming incarnate and obedient all the way to the cross for our salvation. And then God exalted Him, installed Him in power and glory at His right hand so that all will now bow to Him. That's the glorious statement of how Christ saves us through His own self-humiliation. And then in verses 12 to 18, Paul has all these exhortations about how we're to cultivate a life conformed to God's purposes from within the heart, how we're to live distinct from the world, how we're to hold out the gospel to others and live lives that adorn the gospel and be willing to sacrifice and be poured out for the sake of others. So it's Christ's humiliation in verses 6 to 11, our life of gospel advancing witness in verses 12 to 18, then the reason Paul drops these two updates right here where he does is because Epaphroditus and Timothy are such wonderful examples of everything Paul's been teaching. So as Christians, we don't just learn by instruction. We don't just learn by hearing what to do. We don't just learn by being told, all right, here it is, now go do it. We learn by seeing it in action. And part of what Paul's doing is showing in some very detailed ways how fully Timothy and Epaphroditus embody the mind of Christ for the sake of the mission of Christ. He's saying their minds, their hearts are conformed to Christ's purposes. They've been transformed from the inside out, so they're willing to selflessly sacrifice. They're willing to put others' interests before their own, just like Jesus did. And the result of them doing that is Christ's mission advances. So Paul's doing a kind of two-for-one where he's updating them on what's going on with him and how the players are coming and going, but these are particularly important players to watch because we're meant to follow them like they follow Christ. That's at the heart of this text. So Paul is showing us that in order to make disciples of all nations, as Jesus commands us to do, the means are embodying the mind of Christ. Here's Paul's point in the passage in one sentence, to fulfill the mission of Christ you must embody the mind of Christ. I'll say that again. To fulfill the mission of Christ, you must embody the mind of Christ. Now, with that in mind, we're going to walk back through the passage in detail and see seven characteristics of the mind of Christ. We'll get these from Paul's own priorities and example. We'll get these from the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. We'll also get it from what Paul commands the Philippians to do. So, in this gospel partnership, Uh, Just like Jeremy led us in praying for gospel partnerships coming out of England, in this gospel partnership with Paul, with Epaphroditus and Timothy, with the Philippians, what are the priorities and the character that we see embodied in all of them together? Seven points. First, selflessness. Selflessness. Look again at verses 19 to 21. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Paul says he's sending Timothy because he has nobody else like him. Okay, well, what makes Timothy different? It's his genuine selfless concern for others' welfare compared to, in contrast with, other 
apparently professing Christian preachers, teachers, missionaries, etc., who were fundamentally self-seeking. Now, Paul's using a bit of hyperbole here. He's not saying that literally every other believer in the city of Rome is corrupted by selfishness. But we do remember that earlier in the book of Philippians in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 18, Paul talks about preachers who are preaching the gospel out of rivalry and selfish ambition. And Paul's saying, yeah, Timothy's not like that. This job Paul's sending Timothy on would be a long, slow, boring, arduous journey, the only point of which is to check in with the church. So he can then go tell Paul, hey, Paul, here's how the Philippians are doing. That shows that Paul cared deeply about their spiritual state. Paul cared about, are they standing firm in the gospel? Are they united? Are they evangelizing? How are they doing? He was concerned about the quality of their spiritual life together, such that he wanted to get a kind of live update from Timothy. But think about it from Timothy's point of view. This job Paul's given him is not like, hey, go preach to this conference with 5,000 people. It's travel a long time show up and ask how a church is doing, and then travel all the way back and tell me about it, right? If you are trying to pursue Christian ministry, but you only serve Christ in ways that advance yourself, is it really Christ you're serving? Timothy's job was unglamorous. It would add nothing to his follower count. And that's like so much essential work that advances the gospel, So much of essential gospel advancing work is slow and obscure, tedious and tiring, hidden from sight, and frankly hard. If you would serve God, forget yourself. Concern for others' spiritual welfare, like we see motivating Paul and Timothy, that's a litmus test of a living faith. All true believers care about how other believers are doing spiritually. If you love Christ, you will love His people. Love is a commitment to seek the good of the beloved. So, if you love Christ's people, you'll be deeply, naturally concerned with their eternal good. You might think that kind of selflessness is basic or obvious, but the Apostle Paul found it to be vanishingly rare. Among the circle of people he could draw from, yeah, only Timothy really embodies that. If you're not a believer in Jesus, do you see selfishness as a virtue or as a vice? Do you see ways that selfishness has hurt you or even maybe ways that your own selfishness has hurt others? What can change someone's fundamental orientation from self-seeking? to self-forgetting. Here's Paul's answer from just a few verses earlier. Look back, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which I mentioned before. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." God has created us and given us everything we have and everything we are, and so we should delight to center our lives on Him. 
But our fundamental problem as human beings is that all of us have centered our lives on ourselves instead. And it's that fundamental self-centeredness that makes us a threat and a harm to other people because we're our own gravitational pull and we don't care who gets jostled around out of orbit around us. The Bible calls that fundamental self-orientation sin. And it says it's a very big problem, such a big problem that you can't fix it yourself, you can't deliver yourself from it, and ultimately it's such a big problem that it will land you in God's eternal judgment. But God is also gracious and merciful and loving. And so, in addition to being holy and righteous and good and upholding His own holiness, He also devised a way to satisfy that holiness by sending His Son into the world to bear the penalty, the punishment for our sins. That's what Paul is saying Christ did by becoming obedient to the cross. And then Christ trampled over death, destroyed death, ended it forever by His own resurrection and exaltation to God's right hand. So if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never turned from sin and relied upon Him to save you, trust in Him, give yourself to Him, embrace Him as your only Savior. That gospel, that self-emptying of Christ is the only revolutionary solution to selfishness. Everything else is just minor adjustments. That is how Christian selflessness comes about through the power of the gospel. It has to flow from a mind and a heart that are conformed to Christ's mind and heart. Christian selflessness comes from a heart transformed by Christ's selfless sacrifice for you. Point two, character. A second characteristic of the mind of Christ is character. Look at verse 22. Paul says, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Paul's point is that Timothy has worked under him and alongside him humbly, faithfully, loyally. He's been tried and tested, and he's passed the test. The word that's translated proven worth shows up several times in the New Testament, and it refers either to a test or to the result of the test, whether someone passes. Here in our passage, it refers to the result. Timothy has been tested and has passed. In Romans 5.4, Paul uses the same word, and there he says, as we translate it in English, endurance produces character and character produces hope. Character is the stable, tested disposition of your mind, heart, and will that enables you to love, choose, and persevere in what is good. In other words, character is like a deep engraving on you and within you. It's not like a little surface scratch. It's not like something you can just buff out of the paint. It's a deep carve. It's a deep cut. And the shape that's cut in is Christ-likeness, chopped in deeper and deeper and deeper through different divine strokes of sanctification over time. Here's an equation for what produces character. Character equals pressure, there's the test, plus time, there's the repetition. 
plus endurance in effort toward Christlikeness. Character is pressure plus time plus endurance and effort toward Christlikeness. Paul's telling us that's what Timothy has, has demonstrated. He's saying Timothy has demonstrated that effort toward Christlikeness over time, and he's come out true. You can't microwave character. There's no fast pass lane that lets you cut to the front of the line. There's no easy pass, express HOV lane for skipping traffic jams of character. Character comes in part through enduring long lines and traffic jams of life, uh, literally and metaphorically. If you aspire to serve as a missionary or some other full-time ministry, then submit to the slow, seemingly inefficient process of proving your character, just like Timothy did. If you want to do great things for Christ… Do the great thing of cultivating Christ-like character. Cultivating Christ-like character is a community project with a missionary payoff. You never know how God might use someone you're investing in. There's a pastor named John Ryland in England in the late 18th century. One day in his journal, he just had a little comment. He said, baptize the journeyman shoemaker today. That journeyman shoemaker turned out to be Hudson Taylor. Oh, wait, excuse me, not Hudson Taylor, wrong century. It turned out to be William Carey. <laughs> Sorry, got my missionaries confused. Uh, William Carey, England, late 18th century, basically he became the first foreign missionary from the modern era sent from England to a, a far remote part of the world. All that, all that John Ryland Jr. knew was that he baptized a journeyman shoemaker. He didn't know what that brother would go on to become. You don't know what someone will go on to become when you patiently, generously, lovingly invest in them cultivating Christ-like character. Point number three, submission. Another aspect of the mind of Christ, submission, meaning submission to the will of God. Look again at verses 23 and 24. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says, I hope. I trust. Paul was no stranger to having God change his plans. I don't imagine that being imprisoned in house arrest in Rome was part of Paul's original plan. He's submitting to the will of God. Paul knew the difference between his plans and God's plans. One is an idea. The other is reality. And Paul submitted himself completely to God's plans. In this life, the only certain thing about the plans you form is that not all of them will happen. Paul's plans taught him in the way that God rearranged them to submit to God's sovereign will. What has God done to you lately that was not part of your plans? What lessons might be hard for you to learn in any other way than by God crossing your plans? When I preached this sermon originally uh, at our church, Capitol Hill Baptist, a few months ago, we had visiting with us one of our long-term supporter workers. We've had a 15-year relationship with him. Uh, he's served in a country that in some ways is difficult for uh, foreigners to stay in long-term and do gospel work, and COVID had meant that he got fully kicked out couldn't get a visa renewed, couldn't get back in. He'd spent 20 years of his life investing in ministry there. 
And in God's sovereignty, government response to COVID, etc., meant it looks like he's gone. At least for now. We'll see what the future holds. He spent 18 months, almost two years, just kind of milling around stateside, trying to figure out what to do. He was there when I preached this sermon. We talked about it while I was preparing it. And he had all kinds of reflections, all kinds of lessons he had learned in deep recesses of his own heart from God, radically rerouting his own missionary plans. God is the grand chess master. All of us are pawns at best. Chess master decides which pawns move out one space, which move out two, and which stay put right where they are. What plans do you need to hold more lightly? If you want to advance the mission of Christ, you have to submit to the will of its supreme commander. Point four, generosity. Generosity. We see this generosity especially in verses 25 and 30. Look first at verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. When the Roman Empire imprisoned somebody, they typically chained them to a guard, so it was kind of a form of house arrest, and then they did not provide anything else. They didn't provide food, water, other basic necessities. If you were imprisoned, you were totally dependent upon the goodwill of friends, family, supporters, etc. from outside who were willing to take the risk of ministering to you within prison and then being seen as supporters of this person who the state considers to be an enemy. So your friend, your family member, etc. is already been targeted by the state for whatever reason and now you're supporting them and you put a big old target on your own back as well. That's the risk you took in supporting somebody who's inside prison. So this was costly and risky generosity on the part of Philippians. Paul calls this gift a ministry. He calls Epaphroditus a minister because the Philippians were serving Paul through him. The Philippians' generosity was seen not only in sending their money, but in sending Epaphroditus. Paul values Epaphroditus highly. The Philippians valued him highly. It is always costly to send and even more costly to send your best. But the gospel only advances through a culture of generosity. So to send out beloved brothers and sisters so they can advance the gospel elsewhere is painful, but it's also a privilege. Brothers and sisters, especially you who are members of New Covenant Baptist Church, you've only been in existence for two years, but guess what? The Philippian church didn't exist all that long before they actually became Paul's financial supporters. It was not a matter of much more than a couple of years from their birth as a church to them then becoming financial supporters of Paul like we see here. So even though in many ways you're in a season in your life as a church where you're getting established, putting down roots, getting started, think about how can you have a culture of gospel advancing generosity? How can you be a hub for sending and supporting good gospel work? Even if the financial amounts are small, or even if the number of relationships are small, God doesn't despise the day of small things, and neither should you. Think about how that can be a core value you guys have in the culture of your church. How can you give and give and give and give more? Only by relying on the God who always gives first and always gives infinitely outgives you. 
Jesus said to His disciples when He sent them out during His earthly ministry, freely you have received, freely give. Look now at verse 30, where Paul again commends Epaphroditus. He says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That phrase, complete what was lacking, it doesn't charge the Philippians with any fault. It's not saying they were lazy or negligent or anything like that. It's just saying, it's using a kind of Greek economic idiom to say that they had determined to send this support, but the support hadn't been dispersed or delivered. There was a gap between them deciding to support Paul and actually being able to get him the resources. And he's saying Epaphroditus closed that gap. Epaphroditus finished the job. A friend of mine several years ago finished up a PhD. He published the thesis, and he dedicated it to his dad, and he said, to dad who taught me to finish the job. For some reason, that simple exhortation, encouragement from father to son has just stuck with me. Finish the job. Finish the job. That's what Epaphroditus has done here on behalf of the Philippians. He's finished the job. He's been the follow-through in their generosity. Point number five, affection. Affection. To fulfill the mission of Christ, you must embody the mind of Christ. And another crucial characteristic of the mind of Christ is affection. We see this affection abundantly displayed in verses 26 to 28. Paul tells them again why he sent Epaphroditus back to them. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow." I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Last fall, there was a false fire alarm that went off in our girls' school. I guess girls and boy, three kids there, but the two, two girls were part of this kind of accidental fire drill. Our, our daughter's name's Rose and Lucy. Afterward, our older daughter, Rose, told our second daughter, Lucy, that she was worried about her. And then Lucy said she was glad Rose didn't tell her she was worried because she said, then I would have been worried about you being worried about me. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. The Philippians are worried about Epaphroditus because he's sick, and then he doesn't want them to be distressed. He doesn't want that burden to be weighing on them. He's concerned. You know, communication, it was not exactly like you just get a message on WhatsApp or Signal or whatever from friends 800 miles away. They hear he's sick and they're wondering, is he dead? You know, are we going to get bad news in the next set of mail? What's going to happen? So he was concerned because of their concern for him. So Paul says, hey, look, just go back to them. It's okay. Paul's not selfishly hanging on to Epaphroditus. He's generously giving him up again to put everybody at ease. And that would mean one less care for Paul. And so we see here deep, binding, entangling affection all around. The Philippians' affection for Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus' affection for the Philippians. Paul's affection for everybody. Paul tells us in verse 27 that by healing Epaphroditus, God had mercy on him and not only on him but also on me. Paul's point is that his heart is made of flesh, not stone. If Epaphroditus had died, it would have been gain for Epaphroditus, like Paul says, to live as Christ and to die as gain, but it would have been lost for Paul. His heart would have been crushed. 
when, when a beloved brother or sister dies in the Lord, and we just had this in our congregation this past week, a very dear sister who served us as a deacon died very suddenly, and it was just brutal to get the news. She died on Wednesday afternoon. A dear sister, so faithful, so godly. She's only 29. It's just crushing. And, and Paul's saying here, we do genuinely grieve loss down here. We're not meant to be, you know, a brick wall with no emotion. It is gain for her, for that beloved sister who's now with the Lord, but it's loss for all the rest of us. So Paul and Epaphroditus and the Philippians are all embodying what Paul says of himself in chapter 1, verse 8. God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. To love other believers with this kind of godly, Christ-centered affection is to make both their joys and their sorrows your own. It's to treat their triumphs and hardships as if they happened to you. That's why it's such a risk. If you love anyone like this, you will invite sorrow upon sorrow, like Paul almost had. But the love of Christ compels us to love each other the way He's loved us. And besides, if you refuse to invest your heart in others… That has its own perils and pitfalls. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. In order to work together to advance the gospel as a church. You all need to carefully tend and guard and renew your affection for each other. So you have to ask, what diminishes affection and what stokes affection for fellow believers? Well, what diminishes affection, uh, one example would be skipping church for no reason. You're absent for no good reason. You don't see the brothers and sisters that week. There's no chance to be renewed in your affection for them, to check in with somebody, to see how somebody's doing, to be reminded of this brother or that sister's spiritual gifts and how they benefit you. Another would be judging other believers for decisions they make or differences they have from you. Another would be envying gifts that God has given to them but not to you. What stokes affection? Praying regularly for other members by name with specific requests, face-to-face fellowship like we're having now, corporate worship, encouragement, and I mean encouragement going either way. Of course, your heart tends to warm up to somebody if they encourage you. But what if you go out of your way to try to offer an encouraging comment to another believer about the way you see God working in their life, you might find that the discipline of encouraging that brother or sister actually warms up your own heart to them in the process. To fulfill Christ's mission together, we need to love each other with Christ's own affection. That affection should warm our hearts and guide our tongues and strengthen our hands and brighten our faces. 
in the seminar yesterday. It was kind of based on my book, The Path to Being a Pastor. Many of you will know a pastor named Isaac Adams, who used to serve at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and is now at Iron City, Iron City Church in Birmingham. I dedicated the book to Isaac, and I put a part of a quote in the front of the book. Here's the fuller context, which beautifully illustrates Paul's point about affection. This is from Charles Spurgeon. I love a minister whose face invites me to make him my friend. A man upon whose doorstep you read, Salve, welcome. When a man has a large, loving heart, men go to him as ships to a haven and feel at peace when they have anchored under the lee of his friendship. Such a man is hearty in private as well as in public. His blood is not cold and fishy, but he is warm as your own fireside. No pride and selfishness chill you when you approach him. He has all his doors open to receive you, and you are, open, you are at home with him at once. Such men I would persuade you to be, every one of you. Such men and women I would persuade you to be, every one of you. Two more points briefly. Number six, celebration. Point six, celebration. Look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Paul exhorts the Philippians here to joyfully welcome Epaphroditus, and not only Epaphroditus, but all those who embody the mind of Christ in order to fulfill the mission of Christ. Paul is saying that we should honor everyone who lives with that kind of Christ-like selflessness, who demonstrates that kind of Christ-like sacrifice, who's willing to put others' interests ahead of their own good. We should celebrate them. We should encourage them. We should honor the right people in the right way for the right reasons. We should remember those who forget themselves. How can you all do that as a church? There'll be a good conversation to talk about at the burger place afterward. How can you as a church honor those who give themselves away for others' good. Be a good conversation to have together. Point seven, courage. Courage. Just look at the last verse, verse 30. Why should the Philippians receive Epaphroditus joyfully and honor all those like him? Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The Philippians should celebrate Epaphroditus because he risked his life. A few years ago, I was talking with that same supportive worker from our church that I mentioned earlier, and he challenged me. He's kind of reflecting on our own church's culture and other churches with similar theology and commitments, and, you know, we often want to be careful and prudent and dot all of our I's and cross all of our T's and not do anything hastily. And he said to me, I wonder how often prudence is simply cover for fear. It's good to hang out with missionaries because they say crazy stuff like that to you and shake you up. Was it prudent for William Carey to go to India? Was it prudent for Adoniram Judson to go to Burma? 
200, 250 years ago, if you got on a ship and went to the other side of the world, for one thing, it took like three months to get there. For another, you were likely kissing your home country goodbye forever. That's what it took in the birth of the modern missions movement. Those are the kind of degree of sacrifices people made, thinking, I'm getting on this ship. Number one, I might not even arrive there, but that's a risk I'm taking. I'm getting on this ship, and I don't expect any ship ever to take me back. Those of you who are parents, what do you dream about for your kids? Do you dream that they'll get good grades, go to a good school, get a good job, have a good family, a good home? None of those things are bad. None of of those things are off limits. But here's what I would challenge you to dream. I would challenge you to dream that your own children would become missionaries who would take the gospel to far reaches of the globe and name Christ where Christ is not named. We should honor those who risk their lives, who demonstrate costly courage for the cause of Christ. There's no way to fulfill Christ's mission without courage, because there's no way to fulfill Christ's mission without risk. The salvation of the nations is worth risking everything for. Consider the massively high standards of living we're used to here in America. Clean water, modern medicine, air conditioning, even if you have to jury-rig it, cheap, easy travel, relative safety and security. These comforts can so easily become straitjackets. They can easily become blankets that smother missionary ambition under a weight of ease. There's nothing inherently wrong with comfort and security. Comfort and security are relatively good things, but they're also good things to throw away for the sake of advancing the gospel of Christ. If someone were to erase eternity the equation of your life should no longer make sense. Your own and others' eternal joy in Jesus should be the only quantities that can balance the scales of the sacrifices that you're making for His sake. That's what it means to embody the mind of Christ, that willingness to give, that willingness to sacrifice, that willingness to forget yourself and put God and God's people and the advance of the gospel ahead of anything else. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for coming to us in the person of Your Son, for sending Him to save us when we were doing nothing but running from You. Father, we pray that You would enable us to embody the mind of Christ and so find ways to advance His mission in our daily lives. I pray for the dear saints of New Covenant Baptist Church that You would grant them to embody this kind of selfless, sacrificial love, this kind of joyful self-forgetting, this kind of bold, confident, courageous sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.